0: So Dave, we're deep into the semester. How's it going? Great. You've been busy on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock?
1: Yep. Co-hosting Music Biz 101 and more with you. Who have our guests been? Indie artist and alum Lauren Marsh, PR guru George Dasinger, Rosie Lopez, president of Tommy Boy Entertainment, and Adam Kornfeld, Rod Stewart's booking agent. I missed them. Is there any way I can still hear their words of wisdom? Sure. Every show becomes a podcast that so you can hear on our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or on the Stitcher mobile app. And it's all free. Who's coming up next? Grammy-winning producer Harry Wanger, Warner VP Dan Goldberg, Sean Rosenberg, the engagement director at Huge. Oh, that's big. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> the guests keep getting better and better. Our listeners, too. That's Music Biz 101 and more every, every Wednesday, Wednesday at, at 8 PM, p.m. only on 88.7 WPSC Brave New Radio. Radio. Right. I haven't liked the song my right here. Is, this my, is the microphone on? We're on. Are we already we, are we, are we running? I, th- I think we're on air. R- we're we're going to run out. All, right. Yeah. All right. Well, then what we should do. Hello. You are listening to Music Biz 101 and more. I am your professor, David Kirk, Phil. Right here on Brave New Radio, 88.7 WPSC, the greatest radio station on the campus of William Patterson University, located in prestigious Wayne, New Jersey. I'm here always with Professor Stephen, Dr. Marconi. Wednesday. Today was commencement Wednesday. Were you there, Dave? I was there.
0: And who were you sitting next to?
1: I was sitting next to you, Dr. Marcone. Oh, gosh,
0: that's right, you were. Yeah.
1: And we a have a special
0: day. guest tonight, don't we? Who graduated
1: today? We have a well. Our special well, guest is really always, guest always here, here. Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and his name is uh, <laughs> Philip <Korske>. Grush. <laughs> I'm Philip Grush. <Yes>, he graduated. <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you. Cool,
0: thank you. Cool man, anything?
2: Thank you. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I know. I got. Uh, I got uh, <clears throat> Latin chords. I had a communications oh, honors. You had the Latin chords, so that yeah.
0: was at least cum laude. What does that mean? Yeah, words. I don't know. I, you know words. what? It,
2: it doesn't. For me, it's, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I was just, think I was just really happy. In this
0: university, it's a three zero for the chords, and then you move up with. Oh no, I have
2: like a. I graduated like a three eight. So yeah, I I, so I, you I got, might
0: be a summa, a magna. I don't know yeah, if you're summa. I mean,
2: it's all the same to me. I don't know. Well, <laughs>
0: you should get your ducks in order, yeah. right, Professor Felt.
1: When you say Magna, it sounds like the new Avengers movie or something. Like he's oh, he's I
0: Magna. It was a candy bar.
1: Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, congratulations thank for you. Of yes. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. And, I, and I saw you there. I'm,
2: I'm kind of upset you didn't see me, but I got a quick we pic of didn't you. Didn't see him. That's good. Are you going to
1: post that pic on the Twitter? Only Snapchat. I don't know. He was the guy, uh,
0: gotta, if I remember correctly. <laughs> black robe, orange.
1: Wasn't that him? Yeah, or orange uh, thing around yeah, his neck, yeah, and he right. had, this, I had this cap think, on too. Yeah, that. That, cap that was you, right? So that was easy Yeah, was, yeah there, there weren't too many <laughs> of those people. Trees out there in today. the forest. But uh, right. th- and w- 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 I think we should commend Philip, though. He graduated seven hours ago, and here he is, not at a party, but but at a different kind
2: of party. My dedication to this show is just uh, it's un- nothing. Nothing can can uh, influence my dedication to this show. Not Us. even not even graduation.
1: Us too. It's, Yes, yes, we do. We graduated today, but we're here too. We actually have two more shows left with Philip Gorak. Yes, Homsky. that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah. But so enough about Philip. I'm, what are we I'm talking about him. tonight? Uh, tonight we're talking about um, the fact that if it is advice that you are looking for to succeed in the music and entertainment business, Music Biz 101 and More is the only college radio-based broadcast and podcast in Todos los Estados Unidos that provides you with the free tools for success that you need. That's what we're talking about. We're providing tools for the kids. Right on that's it my brother and then we have a good kid with us today his name is Giancarlo Cordasco and he is our student co-host student co-host of the week Giancarlo and his father Joe is here with us as well Joe Cordasco Joe Cordasco say one thing Giancarlo just let's just glad to be here thank you there we go Latin chords Right there. That's more Italian chords. Uh-huh. It's the vocal chords, I'm thinking. That's I still don't right. understand this Latin chords thing. Is that a, what, a chord that goes around your neck? Yes. Okay. Saw, I don't know if you saw many of the graduates who had high acumes. Only the smart ones. Had, that's correct. Oh, okay. Had the chords. Because we're talking music biz, so you're thinking chords, I'm thinking G A C. Oh. Yes. Yes. So, and then, um, okay, so we're <laughs> we're talking about this. We should remind people, Music Biz 101 More on Brave New Radio 88.7 p s c on the campus of William Patterson the University. The beginning song that you heard was The World Is Ours by uh, current... Sudden alum, mm-hmm. she graduated Allison great. McKenzie. She graduated, she graduated today, Ally Mack Project. So thank you, Allison. We will not turn our back to you. The World is Ours will be our theme song mm-hmm. for calendar year 2015-2016. And then um, you, if you're listening, you should check out our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for our newsletter where you can find out everything you would want to know about the music biz. We and find we will
0: some... be here all summer at the exact same time. Yeah,
1: all summer long. 8 p.m. every music Wednesday. Music Biz
0: One Hundred and One. New Correct. shows
1: through July. Correct. And then uh, the best of the best, and then we start up September first, I believe, is, is the brand the new first. show. first. And next week, we should just l- let the listeners know: Paul Sinclair, head of Atlant- head of uh, digital and uh, marketing for Atlantic Records, will be here while you are on assignment. That's right. And uh, we're going to have a big announcement. Mm-hmm. And also, for anybody who has any question at all about the music business, this is the guy to ask. Correct. He's a guru, but we have somebody else who's going to be on the air with us tonight besides is Giancarlo, correct. his dad Joe. We have an alum. We have on an this alum.
0: Commencement
1: day. Do
0: the intro, right. Doctor Staben. Well, we have an alum by the name of Sean Rosenberg, and you might have heard his name if you listened to the show because his name was in the promo for over a year. It's I been believe. about three
1: or four promos. <laughs> Sean right. Rosenberg has for made it for some
0: reason, but now tonight. Sean actually is going to be calling in, and he well, is- He's, he's uh, on now. He has called in. Ah, so Sean is Change listening. Here's everything you're saying. That's right. <laughs> so I'm talking to Dave now, though, but not Sean. And, <laughs> and Sean's a graduate of in early 2000, and has had a, um, a wonderful, varied career, basically in uh, social media plus. And he was at, I believe, uh, RCA on the ground floor of the, um, just the changeover to the Internet and et cetera, et cetera. So uh,
1: I think you're going to enjoy his comments. Sean, are you there? Hello. He, so he's actually here. So ah. We can begin to join your comments immediately. Is that all right Ooh. with you, Sean?
2: Yeah, absolutely. How's it going, everybody?
1: Great. Oh, great. Now, I also
0: say Sean was a visiting music management expert. Yes. I think two or three years ago. I think three I years believe. ago. I believe it was three years ago. Do you Yeah, right?
2: I always come back for a little bit more of Dr. Marconi.
0: That's right. never gets enough. You can never get enough Marconi. <laughs> okay. So, Sean, why don't you just um, give us a little uh, background? Let's start with your internship.
2: Oh, internships. Wow, that really brings me back. Um, that brings me right back to Hackensack, New Jersey, and when uh, EMI was its own uh, label group and had their own distribution uh, centers, and mm-hmm. uh, I was heading out there every day uh, calling up different stores, seeing how many uh, versions of the first Coldplay album that they had uh, sold or at the drive-in, uh, hanging up uh, one-by-one promos in the store windows, making sure the placements were good, that CDs were labeled, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, all of this was way before we were worried about um, how we would reformat music for anything ranging from iTunes to streaming, which was just a, a, a way out in the distance at that point. Hmm. Um, but, you know, learned, learned a lot of the basics, the blocking and tackling of, of the music business out there. When you're on the distribution floor, you're talking every day with, with uh, the retailers and mall at that mm-hmm.
0: time. Point uh, of purchase, for- as it was known then.
2: Yeah, yeah, now now it's that uh, uh, that old brick and mortar, which uh, is, is harder and harder to find back when Tower Records was still in business and uh, Virgin had their mega stores selling CDs, et cetera. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was a real interesting start for me into seeing how, uh, how to connect with the actual music fans and the real purveyors and the curators at that point were the people running those music stores, um, whether they were real small ones or real large ones out in the field.
0: Mm-hmm. So you went from there to um,
2: after that. I, I had a really interesting connection um, in my hometown. I grew up uh, out in Long Island, and I reconnected with somebody, um, Dan Beck, who for a while was tapped by uh, Richard Branson to start V2 Records, and before that, he was one of the senior product marketers at Epic Records, everything from Rage Against the Machine to Michael Jackson, and he had started his own artist management company. So. Um at that point I was uh still taking uh <laughs> classes and getting to apply it day in and day out to every single stream of uh revenue that the artists were attached to um the big artists that we had at the time um and this was while well, I was probably still senior year at William Patterson was Biohazard and we were working mm. on a comeback album for them and it was when uh Friendster was still really hot. And I remember mm-hmm. talking to the lead singer uh, evan Seinfeld and said you got to start a fi a, a a profile on Friendster and get to know your fans it's a really great way <laughs> to uh talk about what, you know what you're doing and, and everything that's going on with the band. They were really skeptical at the time, but was able to build them a web page and start selling merch um, you know direct to fans and uh, remember having a little uh, uh uh, office slash uh, studio slash warehouse where we would actually package the shirts and respond directly to fans but uh, you know even at that time in probably ninety nine two thousand we were still collecting email addresses and starting a dialogue out there um, but now uh, mm-hmm. uh, the music business has definitely evolved and uh, has has bigger practices around how to uh, digitally connect with fans and a lot more channels mm-hmm. uh, after that, I ended up getting into uh, BMG Label Group, which was still a thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, that
2: must have been in two thousand one, and at that time, uh, they BMG was still owned by Burlesman. and the music part of the group had RCA Records, J Records, Arista Records, and Jive, um, and those were all completely dependent—sorry, uh, independent—at that point. Um, so, when I had first started there. It was kind of interesting. They asked me, uh, "Hey Sean, do you know how to what an AAC file is? We need to make them AAC files. We have this big library of CDs, and we need to send them out to Cupertino. There's this company called Apple, and they want to do this thing called AppleMusic.com. So uh, I started going through those different <laughs> different uh, uh, parts of the catalog and." burning these CDs um, at the highest resolution that the computer that they gave me could handle, put them on Zip drives, put them snail mail out to Cupertino, and they started showing up on what uh, later became iTunes. So um, if anybody has issues with fidelity of uh, old Hall & Oates (laughs) or uh, Thompson Twins, uh, singles that you're purchasing off of iTunes, uh, please don't share uh, my personal email address. (laughs) (laughs) But,
1: But Sean, Sean, did you know what AAC files were when they asked you?
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, coming through the the, the, the program at uh, at William Patterson, uh, doing a combination of um, uh, studio work as well as uh, I, I did mostly performance and music business. But because I had spent so much time in the studio, and because we were assembling our own computers at that point, um, we were we were putting in uh, T1 drives or, or T1. Uh, uh, little little boxes into the mm-hmm. back of these giant uh desktop computers, so we could access the internet, which was great on campus so um and because of Napster at the time as well, absolutely know knew about fidelity and different file formats and uh uh you know had to had had to load up a hard drive with um i, I guess it was, I would have to say a lot of free music at the time
0: <laughs> mhm mhm, okay, so then you did that for b m g and then they saw that you were. You knew what you were doing?
2: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, the the, 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 the files went up on iTunes and they started selling. So um, shortly after that, we had done a deal with, uh, well, my bosses at that time had done a deal with um, Singular Wireless, who some people might remember, now <laughs> right. part of AT&T. That's the orange part of their logo now, um, to sell uh, what we're calling Master Ringtones, where... Up until that point, um, everybody still had these giant brick candy bar cell phones in their pockets that didn't really text message that much at the time. Um, smartphones were still maybe the coolest one might have been a Palm Pilot Redux or something going on with BlackBerry. Um, you know, smartphone wasn't even really in the terminology at that point. But a lot of these phones, um, all of the all all of the the, the telecoms had a lockdown on the limited internet service on them. So some of them, they were able to go onto the Verizon store, the Singular store, the AT&T store via the phone, and start purchasing ringtones. And they had graduated from monophonic and polyphonic to being able to handle still fairly low-res um, and, and pretty short, but master ringtones. So it was the first time that record labels actually had a brand-new revenue stream mm-hmm. to be able to collect on the master rights um, around the recordings. So at that time, that that was when I really started having some fun because I was jettisoned in with all the business affairs teams figuring out how do we get uh, Dave Grohl to pick the right 10 seconds of, um, I I don't know, probably Monkey Wrench at the time or something (laughs) like that, um, so that we can sell this as a ringtone. Um, While iTunes at the time, I think, was still locked in at 99 cents a single, with about 30% of that going back to... uh, 30% 30% being held onto by iTunes, 70% coming back to the label, mm-hmm. some payouts after that. Um, with these original master ringtone deals, the carriers, since they had this channel totally locked down, were selling them for two fifty to $3 a ringtone for 30 seconds or less of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were seeing back 50% of that. So the margins were, were really healthy on it. And the, I remember the first round that we had put out there with, uh, with Singular and T-Mobile at the same time um, I think we had Foo Fighters, we had Avril Levine, and then we had, um, I'm not sure if anybody remembers this artist, but look up uh, Petey Pablo and the song Freak a League if you really want to be offended by a set of <laughs> lyrics. They're brilliant. Um, but we figured out very, very quickly in the first week that Petey Pablo outsold everybody by uh, the <laughs> hundreds of percentages. It, it, it was absurd. We were selling, um, you know, at that point for certain hot artists, um, whether it was um, Alicia Keys or um, Hurricane Chris later on, uh, T Pain. Um, we were selling anywhere from half a million to a million ringtones a week when these songs were really hot on the radio. Um, wow. and, and you
0: weren't getting respect, or were you?
2: <laughs> were we getting any respect? Was I getting respect? Yeah. I, I don't know who is getting anything. Uh, we were definitely pulling in uh, a, a big growing line of revenue for the labels that at the time, I mean, you have to remember, everybody was still in the process of suing Napster, mm-hmm. um, and everything else that came up after that, they hadn't really um, shifted over to this newer model nowadays, or even not even nowadays, maybe five years ago, where they started taking equity stakes in the startups instead of trying to sue them out of existence. So. Yeah it was is very litigious at the time and this was a breath of fresh air because we were working with the telecoms they had this all locked down to themselves um, no the convenience of it was there nobody really knew how to connect a phone to a computer to make their own ringtones at the time um, you know there was a lot going on in hip hop and in R&B that that was really ruling the radio and it was just really really popular to have your phone specked out with the with the latest Ringtone or version of a ringtone. So, um, you know that started down this really great path of, hey, if we're already working with these big giant telecoms and have this solid revenue stream coming in from ringtones, what else could we be doing? Um, and there were the natural extensions like doing wallpapers or going to the studio with an artist and customizing ringtones as different exclusives and. These all sell really well. It was really fun. but mm-hmm. uh, we started talking with a lot of other startups and coming up with different ways to actually market the the artist overall, market the albums, um, events, um, uh, merchandise, all all different types of, um, of, of 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 revenue streams for the artists through the mobile channel. so we were starting to build some of the first and they were called WAP sites at the time. Now you have HTML five or you have responsive mm-hmm. sites, but mm-hmm. Um, we had to work directly with the carriers to make things that would work on their version of the Internet. And um, then we started working with different um, – uh, there was a company called Say Now that was bought by Google, and they had these audio channels that we could customize. And at the time, this was still, I guess, around when, when, when Friendster was now starting to shift into Facebook. And uh, we were able to set up these phone numbers for the artists. So they would kind of have a public phone number out there and one artist that we had at the time, who's also an actor, Tyrese, got really, really into this, and he would spend, uh, it seems like, at least uh, half a day, every day, on checking messages of people who were leaving him messages, calling into the line, leaving messages back that were then posted out to everybody who was subscribed to his phone number. You'd get a text every time that Tyrese would leave a new message, and since I was running his, uh, and it wasn't even like a fan club, it was just something that anybody could listen into, and we had this great direct connection with the fans. So I would be getting text messages every time he would leave a new message um, it turned a little strange at one point where, uh, he decided that the label wasn't doing enough to promote his current album, and he decided to put the, uh, the, the, the president of the label's personal cell phone and home address on the voicemail service. <laughs> oh, then all of a sudden, uh, they, I, I get calls that this is happening. We had to talk Tyrese down a little bit, um, and, and, and figure out a better use for the voice line. But, um, you know, I mean, that's some of the fun of having a real direct connection with fans, and that was always the exciting thing about, mobile or digital channels that you can really connect directly with all different fans, all globally, get real-time feedback from them. And and some of the artists who get into it, they can really react to this and get great inspiration from their fans. They can very quickly um, respond to things that might be going on in the press, respond to um, <laughs> different content that they might want to receive, um, different merch, different tour dates, different stops. I mean, the the amount of data that you can get through this is is, is really great, and the personalization of how close it put the fans to the artist on the other side of the equation was really special as well. Um, I mean, some of the messages that they would leave would be really personal. I mean, and and you see a lot of this now on Twitter, um, you know, more in a written form or a lot on Instagram and such, uh, with more video or vines and and, and other multimedia. But, you know, at at that time, it was all just Greenfield territory, and we just had so much fun experimenting with it, and the artists had a great time, too.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm And then what?
2: Um then uh, oh yeah Sony came into the mix. Um that there there was a, a short lived logo um of Sony BMG Music or Sony BMG Entertainment, I think it was yeah, with the logo.
3: Right.
2: It had this nice little treble sign between uh Sony and BMG. All right.
3: Um
2: I think it lasted for three and a half years, exactly the minimum number of years that the joint venture was supposed to exist, and then um Sony decided to buy out um, the rest of the BMG stake. Yeah. And that, you know, it, look, the consolidation, um, we, had, we had always read up on it and knew all the background of Seagram's and um, uh, Universal and how all these groups had come together. I think that probably in 2000, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there were at least still five or six different label groups, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, and by the time, you know, I had left the music industry <laughs> in 2010, or at least the the major label part of it, I think we were down to, I would say, three and a half at that point, because I think that yeah, you know, eyes two eyes. of them are always looking looking to get together. But, um, yeah, yeah. Sony, um, Sony ended up uh, purchasing it in. I think it made more sense overall from the holding company side. I mean, while Burrowsman has other media stakes, like uh, Random House on the book published, Edgar yeah, Harden's they didn't have the same synergies with the electronics groups and everything else. Not that Sony's ever figured out how to make those synergies really come to life. I mean, you see it once in a while in a James Bond film, but Mm -hmm. it'll come out once every three to five years. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, the the Sony group was great. Um, It started more of a consolidation. I mean, Sony really pulled it into having just Epic and Columbia on one side, the kind of ex-Sony side of the business. And then um, all of those BMG labels really consolidated into the RCA music group, Mm -hmm. which for a while was, RCA and um, Jive,
0: Jive,
3: and then right. it
2: really just became one big thing, uh, I think, after I had left. That was, it probably all got condensed by, like, 2011, 2012. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sean, we uh-huh. have,
1: Sean, we have a uh, student co-host with us tonight named Giancarlo Cordasco, Cardas- and he just got a summer <laughs> internship with the RCA Music Group. That's right. I'm looking forward oh, to excellent. it. excellent. Yep. With, uh, Great. Uh, with Joe, uh, Joe Ricatelli. Yeah, Joe Riccatelli.
2: Oh, he Wait. is a great, great guy. He's a GM <laughs> over there now, right? Yeah, yeah he's, he's a
0: general manager. A yeah. GM, yeah. So that's great. Yeah,
2: that's great. Yeah. You know, I remember he was uh he was running promo at Jive um earlier on when, when things were starting to merge together and he, mm-hmm. he he's he's the total right personality to be in that GM role and really look after all of the everybody internally, all of the artists over there. Um but no, that that's gonna be a lot of fun. There's gonna be a lot yeah. for you to learn over there. Yep,
1: I'm looking forward to it. I'm in the uh the promotion department there.
2: Yeah, yeah. got yeah. guys like uh, Jordan Blagren running digital over there, really savvy in the space, uh, and and lots of really good product managers as well. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot with uh, Adam Borns, uh Aaron Bournes and uh, I'm sure Carolyn Williams is still uh, over leading uh, some of the some of the other projects as well. A really really good team over at RCA. They're a lot of fun to work with.
0: So hmm. you um, you should have left the major labels right around ten or eleven. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. At at that time, um, you know, my last—I changed jobs a lot, all through mobile and various digital responsibilities on the label side. I went back to corporate for a little while at Sony, um, at their global digital business group, which is kind of like uh, the the digital side of the distribution company now. Um, Not that uh, (laughs) I mean, distribution takes on a real different meaning now than it uh, did Mm -hmm. when you know (laughs) I started in in 2000. But um, you know, I started working on global accounts at that point and was traveling a lot more to Europe and Asia to meet with um, uh, the Spotifys and the SoundClouds and, um, you know, uh, various offices around the world that were figuring out this changing landscape, because um, at that time, in 2009, 2010, uh, streaming was, was was becoming a lot stronger, as well as um, the video plays with Vivo and YouTube were really developing in a major way. So um, at that time, I was... A little crazy, and decided I would just completely leave and do a startup company in in mobile, and started a little agency um, based on some folks that uh, I had found I had come across in London. Um, it was called Grapple Mobile, and uh, they they were ready to start a U.S. business. They were building a lot of different mobile applications, and because of my background in mobile and digital, um, figured, hey, why not? Why don't I start a little mobile agency and, and, and help people uh, <laughs> make uh, make apps uh, because. The labels, we were, we were trying a lot of different things at the time, but you know, in, in a label type of um, relationship with artists, you don't really have the, the full set of rights to be working on... It, there's a lot of limitations to how you can exploit the, the recordings through mobile channels, at least at that time. I know it's still developing right now, as well as you can't really do much with, it, with name and likeness, um, and you're like, is this a version of the website? What's the play here? So we were doing things like um, AC/DC Pinball. Um, that was a big hit, really easy to, um, you know, take take a classic game. And, uh, I mean, as, as you do in the physical space as well with pinball, put, put a really popular band on top of it, and that <laughs> sold really well. But, you know, the model wasn't really working itself out. So as I transitioned into this mobile app company, um, my clients actually became much larger agencies that were trying to do apps for brands like... IBM and Pfizer. Um, so we were helping them with uh, the unique user experience and technology technologi- technology needs for getting ready to take on that mobile marketplace. And whether that was a native app or a it was, I don't think we were saying responsive website at the time, but an, a website that was at least optimized for for a mobile channel. Um, you know, it, it was really interesting because all these businesses were trying to figure out, do I just shrink down my website? Do I do something completely different on the website? What's the use case? What's the reason here? Is this a, uh, you know, a, a channel for connection and discussion and leading to social media? Or is this a channel where I can provide my own unique content, maybe behind a paywall? Is this a channel where I can actually sell something? How does payment work in this space? So there are a lot of these really great questions. and We had a lot of fun working with some of these uh, Bigger brands out there, um, and you know, once once you get into the startup space in New York, which is a lot of fun, you meet a lot of other small companies. And um, I was actually tapped by a different uh, uh, social network for musicians called Indaba Music to, uh, mm-hmm. to to kind of run across the street and work with them on a business model for social media. So I think in probably two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, I got back into music a little bit, or a little bit more directly and started creating um, a model for lifestyle brands like Converse and Red Bull. We were talking a lot with Vice Media and Mountain Dew, um, and even some that mm, wanted to be a, a lifestyle brand but weren't there yet, like Hertz. But um, we, we if, if anybody's not familiar with Indaba, it's the largest community, I believe still, of musicians online. It's basically LinkedIn for musicians. So mm-hmm. very early on, before I had joined, they had come up with a a digital audio workstation that lived in the cloud. So musicians from all over the world could go and plug in and start a session with one another and do these live recordings online um, and meet one another, talk about things. Hey, I need a bass player. Hey, I need a, a, a vocalist. Check out this little track that I did. And people were really finding each other and creating music. So it's, uh, it was a really fun community to interact mm-hmm. with and bring them different opportunities. So we had this opportunity marketplace. And we would either work with a major label and do something like a remix contest for launch. So you had um, artists that weren't as um, as protective over their masters and, uh, and a label that wanted to play around. So we would work with bands like Linkin Park, and they would break their tracks into stems. And our community would have an opportunity to remix it, and they would actually choose the best uh, remix and put it on an album. Mm. So it was this whole other way of working with music fans to create new content and then go out to the larger fan base and have them vote and interact, tell them what they like best, and then have the artist pick something that would actually help these artists make a career. Um, And and there were a lot of different artists that we worked with uh, out of this community that we really helped push them into uh, a whole set of contacts, a whole network of folks by winning these different opportunities. So since I had more of the brand experience, I started connecting that through further uh, with uh, Converse, for instance. So, have you guys come across? Uh, you know, they, they they started this studio out in Williamsburg yeah. called uh, Music Tracks. Right. Or uh, sorry, uh, Rubber Tracks.
0: Right. That's the Red Bull one, or Converse. Uh,
2: that that's the one that uh, uh, Converse
0: is. Yeah. In. Right.
2: Um, so Jed's out there running this studio, and he he was out finding. Uh, they, they would have local musicians around Williamsburg apply to record there and get free studio time. So we created a number of different ways for them to um, create promotions through social. So kind of bringing that idea to life a little bit, we worked with some publishers. We had really close ties with Sony Music at the time. So we went to Sony Music Publishing, and Converse was working on a new line of apparel that they were going to put out at Bloomingdale's, and it was their black line of clothes. So we went to uh, the Sony ATV catalog searched for black, found great songs like Blackbird and uh, uh, Painted Black. Well, that was with Abco, but um, uh, for the Stones. But, um, you know, we basically went out, clear, pre-cleared some publishing rights, pre-cleared some merchandising rights, um, just purely with the publishers. And we said, hey, Converse, we, we went to the Indaba community and say, hey, everybody, Converse is sponsoring this really great opportunity. If you can make the best arrangement." Of these different songs. We're going to fly into New York. You're going to record a final version of it at the Rubber Track Studio. You're going to go to Bloomingdale's and perform your version of it during uh, Fashion Week. And Converse is actually going to promote that final version of it and give it away for free via their Facebook page, which was a major channel for them at the time. I believe they had something like 1.5 million subscribers. Mm. And we created a, a streaming radio station for them on that Facebook page and um, people were able to download tracks. So as this um, competition started getting some traction, every time somebody would submit a song, they would want to get votes from their fans. So they would post on their own Facebook page and say, hey, everybody, I did this thing. Converse is is, going to have a major winner come out to New York. Support me. Give me some votes. Every time somebody would vote, their vote would show up to their friends. So we would give everybody the option to be able to share this, and all of a sudden, it started creating all of these impressions mm. of music wrapped in Converse logos and information about the, um, the, the the contest and the promotion right down everybody's friends' newsfeed. So Converse, instead of going and buying the uh, the ad space in the right rail or trying to sponsor um, you know individual ads in the newsfeed, they were actually generating and attached into the contents at the time. So we were generating millions of impressions for them. Mm around these different contests, and I, I, I believe, uh, you know, they're still running a lot of these today. So um, we were able to iterate that, um, that type of uh, uh, activity via Twitter, via uh, YouTube at the time. I don't think we ever really got around to Instagram at the time of doing it, but, you know, it, there, there's all of these amazing opportunities if you can find um, some brands that want to be associated with music they want to up, uphold and, and build a big lifestyle side to what, uh, what their brand means and what their brand represents in the marketplace. And if you find independent artists and some other larger artists, whether they're songwriters or performers, that really want to team up, there's some really interesting things that you can do through social media.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you moved over the Madison Avenue side?
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm back with the brands, but I'm, I'm on the agency side. So I work at this um, a, 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 a full-service digital design shop down in Brooklyn in Dumbo called Huge, and um, working with, with some of the biggest brands out there and coming up with different ways for them to be digital, really, at the, at the end of the day. Um, there there's so many different things, and, and, and so many of these brands have so many different um, challenges out in the marketplace. I find one of the things I always say is brands have a really tough time matching their credibility online. And, and what I mean by that is if you go into a retail store, you expect a a certain experience, a certain service level. If you call them on a telechannel or, like, you go into a branch of a bank or, you know, you call your credit card uh, provider to ask them for help, you expect a certain level of service. And very rarely is that matched through a web experience. Mm -hmm. Either you have experiences that are really heavy, really slow, um, too much content, confusing navigation, and they don't really help the user at the end of the day. So what we try to do is really come up with, Really elegant experiences that add value to all different sets of users that are coming into these websites, um, and I think that that's something you know. And I talked about this the last time I was out at uh, at WPNJ, but you know, I, I think that with uh, with with musicians and with artists and content creators, you want them to be able to spend the most amount of time possible in the studio, right. uh, whether that's on their laptop, whether that's in a giant audio studio, really creating and. When they have to take a lot of time and effort to create a beautiful web page um, and rethink the experience of what they mean online from scratch, I think that sometimes that could be a little bit deleterious to their, uh, you know, where they're putting their effort. So, teaming mm-hmm. up with the right digital experts, and I'm not saying big agencies are all the time but they are the answer to this by any means, but um, really taking advantage of a lot of the technologies that are out there to really quickly get you online. And this way, you can think about what is that content. And I, I, I say um, content as uh, I, I don't mean any disrespect. I, I, I still play. I'm a musician. I love music, music, music. But and 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 I don't want to be misunderstood by overusing the term content. But I, I think that it's it's a little easier to to think about it that way. Um, in the same way that a lot of brands are approaching it, where. How do I create the right imagery? How do I create the right text and copy? How do I create the right audio and videos to match it? And what channels am I going to put that through? How do I want my fans to perceive me after they come onto one of these touch points, whether that's going to be via a little post on Instagram or an entire site experience? What are they taking away? Are they getting access to me? Are they finding the catalog that, that I represent? You know, when you have these artists out there like um, – Amanda Palmer, for instance, and she has kind of graduated past Kickstarter now, is, is, is raising money in different ways. She's putting it in these similar terms. She's getting paid a certain amount or, or investing a certain amount of, of what her fans are, are giving to her into discrete pieces of content. It could be an essay. It could be a video. It could be another audio track. But how do you allow those creatives to continue to work on their craft and make the best, audio, video content in general possible and use all of these different channels as as distribution points, but also keep the brand integrity through each of those individual points. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the type of stuff that I like to talk about with, uh, you know, whether it's an American Express or a uh, RCA Records.
1: Right, right. We have uh, a couple tweets for you that we need to have read to you, and our good pal Giancarlo Cordasco is going to ask you, are you you prepared, are you mentally prepared (coughs) for this, Sean Rosenberg?
2: (laughs) <laughs> you never know with social media, but let's give it a try.
1: Okay. Uh, Sean. This question's from Joel Filippi. Um, do you feel like your degree in music business from William Patterson really benefited you once you got out into the real world?
2: Uh, that's a resounding yes. Um, and I would say that the main reason is, and, and maybe you'll find this a little bit also when you get started at RCA. Uh, it, look, everybody in the music business brings a lot of different um, assets to the table. You have some people with... Just this uh, innate passion for music that become publicists, and they're out there and promoting and getting you in media and, and all these different areas. But depending on where you want to go in the business, whether it's um, you know product marketing or publishing or um, uh, you know uh,
0: record company, whatever.
2: Yeah, and any of these angles of it. The things that that, that we were able to learn through taking a music business degree was really the rights and all of the mechanics legally behind the music that the majority of the folks that you're going to come across, especially early on in their careers, do not know what a copyright really is at the end of the day. I mean, every every Grammy Award season, I always want to, like, correct people on the subway where they're like, I think that the record of the year means this and that the song of the year means that. It's kind of the same thing. And, uh, I mean, anybody who's really studied... um, the rights behind music and how you're basically granted this uh, limited time monopoly from the government over something that you need to create value behind to exploit. Um, it's 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 something that's so fundamental to um, really creating new opportunities. So if you're at a label or a publisher and you have a good understanding of what copyright really means, what trademarks really mean, um, then you're able to come up with opportunities for the artists, for the labels, for the publishers that are really going to create value for them at the end of the day and come up with something that's going to actually create these revenue streams, because it is the music business at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. We do need to have publicity. We do need to have um, marketing ideas and good relationships with distribution and partners, and all that comes in and is really important. But when you're getting down to the real business models, really understanding um, the, the intricacies of copyright, what the rights are, what's a good deal, what's a bad deal, for me, those are the, some of the more interesting positions. That's, I, I mean, I've come through more of a business development route and creating opportunities in these greenfield spaces. So understanding that is really, really important. In addition to that, going through and uh, all the case studies that we used to do in um, who is the one? Um, yeah. I, always, I always remember uh, Colonel Sanders or whatever it was, uh, Elvis's manager, and all the bad oh, deals that he made, right. or Colonel, studying Colonel Bob Rothman and how he was able to, you know, bully the labels because he had the artists on their side and the age of the artists. Right. Um, I, I think that when you go through all, all of that, you get a much better understanding of um, of, of what's really happening behind the scenes and the, the groundwork of how the industry works. And it gives you a lot more options um, to, to go down any type of path that, that might happen at a company that hasn't even been invented yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, may I ask a follow-up? And then uh, Giancarlo. I also She's... have a follow-up, actually. If Why don't you go first, because <laughs> sure. you have the uh, yeah. the cooler name. Um, so bouncing off that question, um, how, how can you relate? Uh, you were saying you were a musician as well. How can you kind of apply that to um, just going through uh, the industry like that and in your position now?
2: Yeah, so um, there's a, there's a whole thing of artist relations, and when you're at a label, if you're at a publisher, um, even if you're at an artist management company, um, you have to be really selective who you're going to put in front of your artist at the end of the day, and somebody who understands what's actually happening at the studio and what's what a part of the craft is, and whether that somebody what, whether that artist is creating um, you know via more digital means or very traditional, you know, acoustic instruments, whatever that might be, you're not going to want to put people in touch and representing that artist and hanging out with that artist day in and day out who aren't good at artist relations and really understanding and can empathize with that artist. So I think that, you know, having that performance side of it and coming from there in a background, you're able to connect with artists on a very different level Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, appreciate and understand the things that, you know, they really want to get. Because it's not their job to understand the copyright and everything else, so being a good translator for them into the business, helping them understand the trade-offs that they're going to make, um, and you know, being you know, being a responsible person and not somebody that's—I uh, uh, mean, transparency is is the real big trend that's growing right now with with mm. digital in the industry. So, um, being a good translator for them in, in this new transparent industry, I think, is a real big asset.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners are DIY musicians who aren't at the point where they have a translator. So they're actually not only the speaker, they're their own translator. You know, they have to do their own social and they have to be in charge of their own careers. And as you know, because I know you came on campus a few years ago and you spoke with uh, a particular uh, class. If you have, let's say it's a jazz musician or a classical musician or a pop musician or a world musician, do you think no matter what, every DIY artist should have some sort of social strategy?
2: Yeah, and and I think that, you know, with a social strategy, um, with, with strategy, I always like to say, what are the things that you are not going to do? So by first saying that, hey, you know, these are certain channels that I like and come natural to me and I like to communicate with, or I don't like to communicate through these channels at all, either of those is okay, or something in between, so... I think that first deciding the things that don't work for you in social is, is a great starting point on a strategy. Then once you get into the things that you do like to do, the strategy isn't saying, I'm going to post once a day to this forum. That's not a strategy. That's that's a tactic at the end of the day. So coming up with how can I share with my audience and, and what's the best way for me to connect with them and what kind of expectations should I set and start really with one channel that works for you. So, you know, if if, if you are, are a visual person and you like to take snapshots of certain you know moments in the studio or whatever that creative idea is, go for it via Instagram or use SoundCloud and, and share different ideas and thoughts via audio, whether that's with your voice, whether that's with your instruments. Um, but I, I think the the part of the trick is it is try not to spread yourself too thin with it, um, especially when you're on your own because you're always going to have to make these 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 tradeoffs for yourself of do I spend more time on social media or do I spend more time creating or do I spend more time in the real world trying to interact with fans?
1: It's tough because it's a real uh, – it's, it's time management because you you could say, well, I'm an artist. This is my craft. I have to be the most awesome musician ever. But unless you're, especially nowadays, unless you have some sort of, like you you mentioned, uh, choosing where to go, where not to go, unless you have some sort of plan for yourself, nobody's going to know that you're an awesome musician because you never put your stuff on SoundCloud. You never took a picture that you posted on Instagram or a 15-second video there or a six-second video on Vine or anything like that. So um, it, it seems that musicians need to have some sort of time management so that they know every day I need to spend a certain amount of flexible time to fulfill my obligations to myself as a social animal and uh, and promote myself a little bit, do you agree, or do you think I'm an idiot?
2: Oh no, I, I think oh. you're spot on. <laughs> a little I bit of both. I, I, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's always a mixed bag. But uh, right. I think you know the, the the toughest thing. I mean, by saying you're a DIY uh, uh, musician, I think it, part of that implicitly you're you have to be a very brave person to do that mm-hmm. to put yourself out there to really. Um, you know, it's tough to not have an A&R-ish type of person or a artist manager that can challenge you creatively. So this is a really great way. Uh, you know, I, I think maybe look at uh, a slightly different entertainment industry with, with uh, you, you hear these, the story from comedians day in and day out. I was out there, and I didn't know how to do comedy. The, the You know, the, very quickly the crowd boos you off stage or whatever happens, and then one day it kind of clicks, and you understand how to play to that audience. Mm -hmm. and the audience doesn't have to be 100% of the world, it just has to be your percent of the world, but until you're brave enough to put your craft out there and pick a channel to do that through you you, you can't do these things in a bubble you really just have to get out there
1: Mm -hmm. Giancarlo has another tweet to read to you this is from the Precursor do you think programs such as Periscope will become the new scalping and do you think the artists will begin to use it explain what Periscope is before you answer that
2: um and so yeah so Periscope just made uh, big headlines at the the, the yeah. Mayweather Pacquiao fight right because right. nobody could get on pay-per-view in time and all these things were happening and some people opened up um uh, uh, some video feeds but look there was a, there was when when YouTube first came out it failed because the, uh, the the internet couldn't handle the video streaming speeds and the things that were happening i mean you still had like these 8k websites and things mm-hmm. that like barely uh, took into account visual design or user experience, much less the beautiful experiences you now have, you now have from a HBO Go to a YouTube to a Hulu. So, yeah, sure. I, I think that, you know, the, the, the coolest new thing on the block is fun, and you're going to have some DIY artist, like, um uh, and, and big DIY, like a Nine Inch Nails or a Radiohead do something, and maybe you'll have an Eddie Vedder sue them if they tape the next Pearl Jam concert. But you know, until these these actually gain momentum and the mobile networks are there, and there's more than one use case. I mean, you got to look at the the, the Pacquiao Mayweather weather fight as well, bringing Periscope into the light as a once in a decade event that kind of brought boxing back to the <laughs> to the limelight. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we need to see a couple more examples of that particular service really take off. Um, besides that one use case, to know if something's happening. But yeah, I think that artists are always going to be a little bit sketchy about how smartphones and computers that fit in your pocket are being utilized by fans. I mean, artists are still getting upset that that, that they're on their phones at all and not actually paying attention to the concerts, and they're snapping pictures and videos.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a saying out there that the techies are the new rock stars because the old definition of rock, of course, was to disrupt and to change and to challenge and so on. And, uh, you know, when you look at something like Periscope, you really s- see that this is quite true, that the techies are really are uh, challenging the status and they're challenging the norms and they're coming up with new and different ways. And it's your job basically as an artist or whatever uh, aspect of the industry you want to be in or are in to stay up with it. Uh, so you know, it's always interesting to me to see that that the there's this new thing, and these guys have created this new thing, and now everybody's got to sort of be play catch up, or they're not going to have it as a revenue stream anymore, or that, or their revenue stream may be uh, destroyed.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and the tough thing with with these tech companies, every time one comes up, I mean, even when Twitter first came out, and I'm guessing oh six oh seven, sometime around then. Um, It was really, really tough, even at a major label, to get in touch with them. They were blowing up so quick to validate and officiate artists' profiles. You know, you had all these posers coming in, so to speak, um, and we wanted to make sure that we had those official tags next to uh, Alicia Keys at the time, and we couldn't get a callback for weeks from Twitter. They were so inundated. So, yeah, I mean, if you have a line into one of these companies and you want to place a bet on what the next unicorn is going to be real early on, get in touch and and start start a relationship because uh, I I agree that tech are the new rock stars, but they definitely don't think that they are most of the time. So um, if if you're in entertainment, you can wow them uh, pretty quickly if you get in there early and do some interesting things.
0: Yeah, and I mean that, you know, they're the new rock stars by definition. I mean, in the old definition of what really rock was like uh, and what rock was supposed to be doing, and, of course, it has been – so, uh, I would say watered down and just has become so mainstream that you really have to search for anybody that's challenging uh, out there in their music alone. So, it is really these techies that, that, that just are really challenging what's going on. And it's great because it's new and different.
1: Sean? Yeah. Marconi is just so amazing. Oh, I know. There's nothing to say sometimes (laughs) when he'll say something. And yeah, and you are speechless. You're just frozen. (laughs) It's like Medusa. (laughs) Like that. Hey, Sean, quick question for you. Yeah. Um, What would you say uh, the future of music is in terms of mobile, since your background is so strong in the mobile sphere? What would you say, you know, two years from now, three years from now, how is mobile going to be different? Are people going to be spending um, that much more time on larger smartphones and spending that much more time using things like Periscope and, and different apps like that and a lot more streaming? What, kind of Where do you think it's heading?
2: I mean, look, I think a lot of it is already there, really. Google announced a week or two ago that, you know, it's official. More searches happen on mobile than on desktop. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is because you're searching for smaller, discrete things, um, you know, in real time in a lot of different use cases, anywhere from... Being at home and interacting, when you know you're, you might be on the computer, need a second screen. You're watching TV, want a second screen. You're out in the real world, needs to check in on Google Maps. Where's the closest thing to this? Can I get a coupon for that? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that you know people are getting more comfortable with asking their smartphone for answers, um, and that's just going to lead to the companies that do best in search and search engine optimization or paid search and can get in front of these little segments of the audience that have different needs out there. So, um, you know, I think that that Spotify is doing some really, really great things, but, um, you know, 15 million paid users, they need to add three more zeros on that to be a real, you know, (laughs) revenue stream. I think that right now music is the cheapest it's ever going to be. I mean, I I subscribe to Mm -hmm. Spotify for 10 bucks a month, and I can listen to 98% of the music in the world? I mean, it's insane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I, I think that these services are are still missing a couple of things. One thing that I'm constantly frustrated by is curation, and I think that that goes past just the catalog of the albums. Um, I mean, you you search for a band like uh, the Rolling Stones right now on Spotify. I I need a a Wikipedia guide to, to dissect what I'm seeing there. It's... A total mess. Mm-hmm. Even if you look for one popular song, it'll come up with 18 different versions with like 18 different ISRC codes and I don't know which is the, the, the right one, best one to listen to. I just mm-hmm. heard it in a commercial and I, I liked the song. I wanted to find out more about it. So I think that... Um, you, know, you know, that's
0: something not, that uh, that I, I I had a lot of faith that I thought artists were going to start putting out apps instead of music, but their apps would be curated by them, and then you would just buy the app and maybe two years from now or two months from now, whenever it was, you'd pay another two ninety nine and buy another app. And it seems that, um, you know, what everybody says, Dan Eck has just uh, demolished the point of purchase uh, in the sense that we don't really need to do that unless we are someone like you're describing who says, well, there's just too much. Rolling Stones out there for what I forget it. I'm not going to do it. I don't have the patience to do it. And so I I was really a little disappointed because I thought really that that was the that was sort of the direction that the big record companies were going to try to push their artists into. But I guess it wasn't a big enough revenue stream for them or they didn't see a way of really capitalizing on it.
2: Yeah, well, I I think that also the the labels don't generally own enough rights to do something that's going to have the ultimate value to the fan. And, you know, I I, I don't really like describing it as fan club model, but it's something, it's somewhere in that sphere where the the artist has an opportunity to create an environment. Mm -hmm. And not, I I mean, I love what Bjork did with with some of these interactive albums and these other things, but there are these real discrete instances that not necessarily age well. I mean... Literally, in ten years, you're not going to be able to download it or, or access it because Apple's going to force you to so- upgrade the software to iOS 52.0. Yeah. And, uh, you know, YouTube doesn't even work on on a four year old uh, 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 iPad right now. Yeah. So, um, creating some sort of subscription service. Um, if you look um, into beauty and uh, beauty products and what's going on right now, a service like Birchbox, which starts you out with these free samples,
3: subscribes
2: mm-hmm. for ten dollars a month, and you're trying some different. Yeah. Um, uh a uh, uh, pomade for your hair, face wash, right, the razor and clubs whole, and so on,
0: yeah.
2: A whole catalog there to actually purchase the ones that you like. What 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 is that right subscription model that bundles in all of the rights from the artist standpoint and the DIYers, you know, this is at your foot at your doorstep right now to be able to do. How do you create this environment that starts to curate and I'm going to use that word content again across, you know, everything that's important? How do you tell a story? Through a digital experience and whether that's captured through a website, an app that you download, maybe it's a freemium type of experience where you start and you get a certain amount of it. Even a Hulu does something like that or, um, you know, uh, YouTube or Vivo. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be ad supported at the end of the day, but something that really has that connection and that exclusivity that, hey, you have, you can retain rights now as an artist to say, I get a certain amount of first-dib stuff for my subscribers, my fans, for ticket sales, for mm-hmm. merchandise that's exclusive, for records that I give away. And can I, as an artist, actually keep up? This this is the, the real challenge, because iTunes tried to do this a number of years ago.
1: Um,
2: but how do I create a constant flow of content? And again, it might not just be limited to audio, but that is going to keep up that subscription for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, HBO Go is trying that right now with their announcement of HBO Now. So mm-hmm. are people going to purely subscribe to that catalog? They have a lot of great shows that they've built up now, but how long do you want that that individual um, thing? I think it's a little different with music because the fan club model has worked there in the past. I think there, there was one stat I used, used to always quote, and I think that it was from the early 90s when... Um, CDs were still in a bit of a boom, but I think that the average consumer, not music fan, but average consumer had three CDs on their shelf. Mm. And uh, one of them's a gift, one's the band that they really like, and another one, I don't know, is something from, uh, you know, a spouse or, or an ex that mm-hmm. uh, got left at their place. <laughs> uh, it, it was something really disappointing like that. But, I mean, look, when you average out what's going to work for the masses, and Pandora is in that space right now where people can just lean back Super easy. It's curated enough. Maybe I hear the same songs a little too much, but uh, I, I, I like it enough to not pay for the advertising. And, you know, radio is only playing this new stuff that I don't really care about. So that seems to be working for some people. Um, Spotify is the over, it's the DIY fan. It's great. You can geek out. You can put together your own playlist and do all this stuff, but there's not a lot of lean back options where if 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 you are an artist that's really starting to that, that is going to have a prolific career has had a prolific career, and this is like you know I, I wish I saw more of this from the nine inch nailses and the and the radio has <laughs> pulled back their rights to create this real environment that uh, you can subscribe to and have access as a fan and it's all about exploiting that that real core fan base that you have and is your audience because they're always looking for that next tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're always going to be looking for that next album, that next release from you. So I, I, I think that it still has to evolve. It's really hard to predict, though.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we, it, one thing that's not hard to predict is the fact that our show is over. We ran out oh, of time. No. Yes, exactly. you, you have done such a perfect job, Sean Rosenberg, of speaking oh, off the cuff. And we know you're off the cuff because we believe you're wearing a sleeveless shirt right now. So we want to thank you, Sean Rosenberg, of huge, director of engagement, right? Engagement director, director of engagement, same yeah, thing, right. right? Tomato, tomato. But we want to thank you, Sean, for, uh, for being here with us tonight. May we clap for you right now, Sean? Do you mind if we do that?
2: Because we're going to do it anyway. We're doing it anyway, Sean.
1: But we want to thank you very much for appearing on uh, And we'll have piece, you on more? again in a year or two. Yeah, As in a year or two we evolves. will have you on. Me be, in the rotation, yeah, yes, we'll get you in, as, the, in the regular rotation. The business re- evolves. Yes, every fifth yeah. day we need our lefty to come out <laughs> and, uh, and and pitch for us. So we appreciate that. So one more time, Sean Rosenberg, thank you so much, and alum on a very special day, a special commencement day at William Patterson University. Streamed.
2: Yes. Well, thanks we, everybody for having me. Always great to reconnect. And uh, good luck. Good luck, John you, Carlos. You're uh, you're going to have some fun this summer.
1: Thank you very much. Carlo who is so professional this entire time he sat up straight he hasn't said one bad word he's an excellent person we want to thank Giancarlo Quedasco for being our student host we want to thank his father for driving him today nobody knows that Giancarlo is 11 years old with just a very low voice we want to thank Philip Gaurav Gorf- Kowalski, who graduated today That's and right. is thank still you. here, he is Mr. still here. It's yes, Mr. Yes. Gor- Mr. Gorachowski who Sorry. shows up. We want to thank the doctor, Stephen Marconi. Yes, I'll be on assignment
0: next week, but I will be back for the final live. Show of the semester
1: That's right, that will be May 27th Next week is Paul Sinclair, Atlantic Records Give us your questions now, tweet us any day of the week Any hour of the day At MusicBiz101WP Sign up for the newsletter, MusicBiz101WP.com And of course you should know that you're listening to The World Is Ours by Alice McKenzie Of the Ally Mac Project, who is also a graduate Of William Patterson University And you have been listening to MusicBiz101 and more we want to thank you until next week
3: Adios!